Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. In this episode, Jamie Sharp shares the amazing story of his team's circumnavigation of the Svalbard Archipelago, and the team included himself, Tara Mulvaney, and P.G. Porsanger. This is a proper adventure full of incredible beauty, despite the environment and the animals doing their best to try to kill you. So today's episode is longer than most, but it's truly an engaging story and definitely well worth the time. Jamie's a referral from another guest, James Mankey, and we heard James' story about paddling the Grand Canyon, which he did with Jamie in episode 36. So a big thank you goes out to James for making the connection, and enjoys today's episode with Jamie Sharp. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to Paddling the Blue today. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, great. I'm glad you're able to join me. So, Jamie, tell us a little bit about your background as a paddler. How did you get started in uh, water sports? For me, it all started when I was about 11 years old. I was on a family canoe trip on the Wanganui River in New Zealand. And um, it's a whitewater multi-day trip. And it's it was a very much a fun trip. But part of my frustration was being in a canoe with my mother or anybody else. I didn't feel like I was the captain of my own ship, so to speak. And we had um, one whitewater kayak with us. And my cousin, who was probably about 18 at the time, he was paddling it. Didn't know how to roll, so we swam a lot. But uh, at the same time, I was like, that is what I want to be in. I want to be in my own craft and be the master of my own boat. And so that sort of um, triggered off, uh, I guess, a career or, a, or I guess a passion for whitewater kayaking initially. And I started paddling whitewater all through my teens. That then led to me becoming a whitewater kayak instructor, going to university, studying outdoor education. During that time, I injured my shoulder. Uh, and that led to a frozen, impinged tendon shoulder issue that took six months to sort of rehabilitate. During that time, I worked in retail. And I got into sea kayaking as a way to rehabilitate my shoulder. So suddenly I went from this young gung-ho whitewater paddler who saw sea kayakers as old men with gray beards and not do anything cool to now I am a sea kayak guide. The process was very much about paddling slow, being able to think about how to rehabilitate my shoulder, um, but it led to an unexpected collaboration of three of my favorite things, which was kayaking, sailing, and backpacking. So suddenly all this sailing nautical knowledge was combined with obviously kayaking and then the ability to go on these big journeys with all this gear, AKA backpacking, but now on the water totally had me hooked on top of that. It was also a far better way to make money than whitewater kayak constructing or raft guiding, which I was doing at the time. And so that really hooked me in. I was like, Oh man, I should have been doing this as a job for all through university and, um, but I had finally discovered it and that then led me to Canada where I started working in Canada as a sea kayak guide. It then took me to Central America, uh, took me to Europe, took me back to Canada. And you know, years later, I'm still living in Canada because of the, the amazing sea kayaking that there is here. But the journey itself, really paddling, no matter what it was, I'm also now a canoe guide. I do sup paddling. Uh, I now race outrigger canoes. It's for me. It's just about blade, water, being out there. I really enjoy that journey, and so it's um, 
paddling thankfully for me has been a huge part of my life for yeah since i was a teenager and now i can say that i make a large amount of my living from paddling which is really amazing i've been sponsored by coca dad i've been sponsored by lindell paddles for uh and that to me was really kind of like the the epitome of reaching the plateau of the sport was actually being recognized as a protein paddler for Kokatad and and being given gear, not necessarily being paid money, but being given, you know, a lot of gear to help me do what I love to do at an affordable sort of uh, level. Of course, years and years of paddling, guiding, there wasn't as much personal challenge in the professional realm of sea kayak construction, sea kayak guiding, uh, whitewater kayak constructing. So it led to me looking for ways to challenge myself. And that started with a three month journey down the west, or sorry, the east coast of New Zealand. And that was all just about a, a training run. It wasn't trying to achieve any world first, but it was all in the learning curve of how do I take filming equipment? How do I take good gear and sort of achieve some level of sponsorship to support me for a bigger expedition, which I had in mind, which was the Svalbard expedition. And I believe that's the, the main focus of what we're going to be sort of talking about today. So you took uh, what you what you initially saw as a sport of a bunch of graybeards, and you've had the opportunity to really make it your own. And you just spend a, spend a fair amount of time on the white water of the sea too, right? Yeah, so that's the other, I guess, initial thing I saw was like, how do I... How do I sort of create that adrenaline rush in, in sea kayaking? And, you know, initially it wasn't so common, uh, the white water of the sea as it's become called. Uh, but now it's very much common, like rock gardening, surfing tidal rapids, stuff like that. And it's uh, so, but a, a fun aspect of what I really enjoyed sort of putting a spin on and uh, Ken Whiting was one of the, the first that sort of started doing it was taking sea kayaks down rivers and doing sort of river trips. And so at the time I was working with track kayaks and their folding kayak system. And I really wanted to test the maneuverability and functionality of this design they had. It's this very quick to set up folding kayak. And I was like, well, let's start taking it down rivers. Let's see if we can surf standing waves. Let's see if it can handle the Grand Canyon. Let's see if it can, you know, handle, you know, whatever non-normal things you would do with a sea kayak. And uh, so it all started off for me taking it down the middle fork of the Salmon River. And so that's like a class four sort of uh, run in the U.S. And it was a super fun trip. I went with a bunch of whitewater paddlers who hadn't really paddled with me before. We had a couple of rafts. And um, they were kind of a bit like, okay, you want to bring a sea kayak down this run? And, um, but a few of them, you know, I sent them a few videos of paddling whitewater and normal whitewater kayaks. And they're like, okay, well, you know how to paddle a whitewater boat. So I'm guessing, we're guessing, we're hoping that you are <laughs> capable enough and know what you're doing enough that you'll be all right in the sea kayak. Yeah, it was a good challenge. It was really fun. Um, a good combination of, of a big enough river with big enough rapids to sort of have some fun on. And then that led me on to sort of pursuing other versions of it, like taking sea kayaks down the Grand Canyon, which I've done twice now, once in a single uh, in a Valley Gemini sport play. And then the second time was in, actually in a, with a double sea kayak. I took a Passat G3 down the Grand Canyon with 
my friend Jill, and she had never really done whitewater. She didn't know how to roll a kayak. And so part of that project for me was like, how do I take somebody down a journey through the Grand Canyon without a raft? And they don't know how to roll a kayak. And I was like, well, if we can get a raft down there, there's no reason why we can't get a double sea kayak down here. And so that became sort of the challenge of that trip. And it was a successful trip. It was definitely a moment, probably about four days into the 11 day trip where it was like, maybe we haven't made the right choice. Um, but it, it, it ended up being a really fun choice. Um, whether I would do it again, I think I'd want to make sure I do it with somebody who really, really enjoyed whitewater. Jill did, thankfully, and I would definitely do that trip with her again. But I wouldn't necessarily just take anybody down in a double sea kayak. Um, mostly because the person in the front of the double kayak takes the brunt of every single rapid and they have to be willing to just be submerged the whole time. Um, so it's not necessarily the best position for somebody who's completely novice to be in because they are just going into it head first, literally. And it's um, very intimidating and you have to be the right sort of personality to handle that if you're not really into whitewater so much. I can only imagine. It's uh, yeah. it sounds amazing. So you've uh, you mentioned the the trip down the east coast of New Zealand, and uh, you said that wasn't one of the world's firsts. And you've had many incredible expeditions. That but one that stands out as one of the world's last firsts is Svalbard. So tell us about the trip that you've named Ice Bears and Islands. Yeah. So this trip was, I guess, ever since I was at university, and I went to university and was lectured and mentored by a really great man, Mark Jones. And he was part of a group of people called Adventure Philosophy. And they did the first ever circumnavigation of South Georgia. They did another one through uh, Patagonia sort of area. They did some stuff up in Greenland and that. And so during university, I was very privileged to be learning from this person who was doing these amazing world firsts and it really really inspired me and doing it in sea kayaks so again i was getting that sort of bounce back that reverb that sea kayaking isn't just for you know people who want to paddle in flat water and are are too old to do anything else it's like no you can do some serious journeying with these, these these boats um so that led to me throughout my years going yeah i want to find just like a really epic trip um, so it wasn't necessarily about it being a, a world first. It was about it being a challenge to myself. And so I'd been looking, you know, Aleutian Islands had sort of presented themselves. How, how to, could you paddle from Russia back to Alaska or the other way around? But then when I ended up going to, to work and live in Norway, that's when I discovered the Svalbard Islands. And I was kind of like, what's this crazy little group of islands just off the coast of Iceland and between you know, there in Norway, and um, I'd never heard of the place, and then discovered there was this amazing kind of Arctic utopia that was governed by Norway. And so I was like, okay, well, has anyone paddled around it? So I started researching that and discovered there'd been a number of successful trips around the main island, Spitsbergen, and there'd been a couple of attempts at the four main islands of the Svalbard archipelago, but none of those attempts had actually succeeded. And in fact, the one that had happened most recently was from two characters. One was from Israel. The other guy, I think, was from the UK. And they had tried it and they'd sort of got 
partially around it. They were dragging over the ice, and then one character fell through the ice and retweaked an old back injury, and they had to get um, Heliovac'd out because they were now stuck on this slab of ice that was drifting out to sea, and he was partially kind of in pain and partially paralyzed. So I was like, okay, this trip's this trip's cool. This trip's not just about pushing the ability of you know, can you just paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle? You know, a lot of sea kayaking expeditions are, I always joke, they're like, oh, yeah, it's just like, look at my blisters on my hand. Oh, look at the blisters on my hand today. Look at this. I paddled for 24 hours today and haven't slept and it's just paddle, paddle, paddle. For me, it was more about how do you challenge yourself against an environment that doesn't want you there and how do you work with that environment and how do you have this otherworldly experience? And it's not just about, how long and fast can you pass? Svalbard to me was perfect. It's like, okay, we've got polar bears, we've got sea ice, we've got this amazing, surreal, half-frozen landscape. And no one else had really managed to do it. So I was like, perfect, recipe's there, I really want to do this. And that was, now I'm trying to remember, 2009, 2008, when I was there looking at that. And, you know, a bunch of people I got to know in Norway were like, oh, you know, that's kind of, it's a crazy trip. There's a reason why no one's ever succeeded. And then one character, PG, who was working with his wife at the time, he was like, you know, if you ever want to do that trip, I'd be interested in doing it. And so we tentatively made plans for sort of 2012. Let's say, okay, maybe we'll start piecing it together for 2012. And then that year, 2009, when I was still in Norway, there was another team that went off, two young guys from from Norway who went off to do it and I was like okay here we go I've just had this great expedition and now these two guys are going to go and and maybe they're going to succeed and same time I was like wow you know it doesn't really destroy the trip for me because it's more about exploring this amazing place but you know world first is always nice so I was very excitedly watching their progress as they went and um so of course they got about twenty something days into it, and suddenly in the in the Arctic, you know, sunlight night, they were sleeping in their tent with a, a tripwire fence around the tent, and a polar bear got through the tripwire fence and ripped through the tent, grabbed one of them by his head, dragged him out, uh, started sort of trying to kill him and eat him, <laughs> and then. Um, uh, the other team member came out of the tent. He reached for a gun. One gun supposedly was bent by the polar bear standing on it. Managed to find the other gun. And this guy was luckily a very good shot. And he was able to shoot with his rifle past his teammate hanging from his polar bear's mouth. Hit the bear. who dropped his teammate. And then had to shoot the bear four more times. And unfortunately kill it. Obviously ended their trip completely. But put this whole new spin of reality on what was at stake on this expedition so yeah sure like i knew there was going to be polar bears in this trip but now it really came home like your life is in your hands like it's like real and it's even out of your hands to a certain extent if you don't manage yourself well so that was like a really really sobering realization and a number of people came to me and said okay so now you've just seen what happened i guess that expedition is not something you want to do anymore is it and I was actually, you know what? I want to do this trip even more. And they're like, what? And I was like, because it's really like, that's just showing like, it's not about the sea kayaking so much. It's about how can you manage yourself in this environment that 
you know, some people would say it doesn't want you there, or I would sometimes jokingly say it does want you there because it just wants to eat you. So it's quite happy for you to be there. But how do you get through that without one, killing a polar bear and two, not being killed by a polar bear? So this added a really intriguing twist to it for me where I was just like, okay, this is a real awesome journey. Uh, and a lot of people thought I was kind of crazy for that. But I guess just another little background. My father's South African and I grew up with stories of Africa and all these wild animals and stuff like that. And I grew up in New Zealand, which had, unlike Australia, had no poisonous animals, had nothing that really wanted to kill you or eat you. And from a young age, I was always super fascinated by megafauna, mega predators, alpha, you know, apex predators. And so for me, this just really fit into this, this mind curiosity I had with those sort of animals. And so it filled my sense of adventure. It filled my fascination with um, just amazing animals that live in amazing places. You mentioned uh, adventure philosophy. And yeah. uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Graham Charles, one of the members of the adventure philosophy team. And one of nice. the things that he said in, uh, in his interview was, you know, expeditions have become so overprogrammed and so planned that we've sucked the adventure out of the expedition. And uh, so it sounds like that's what you were seeking was you were seeking that adventure philosophy. You were seeking that. I still want to have that proper adventure. Absolutely. And that, and that essentially is kind of like why I proposed the idea of taking sea kayaks down the Grand Canyon. You know, the whole Grand Canyon is done by, I think I read statistics. There's like 40,000 people that go down that annually, you know, and I was kind of like, how do we make a trip that 40,000 people do annually and put a spin on it so that you kind of, re-feeling the sense of uncertainty that the Powell expedition had originally. And what better way than to take a, a totally non-normal craft down the Grand Canyon? One that some people are like, what are you doing that for? That's crazy. That thing's going to break on a rapid or, you know, that's just, you know, and it does, you, you sit there going, geez, have I made the right choice? Is this the right thing to do? But now you're like, this is really the essence of what it's about. And I believe that was set in from like, you know, my earlier learnings from the adventure philosophy crew, Graham and Mark. And, and that really rang true to me. It's like, yeah, how do you experience something that isn't just like, oh, physically challenging. I'm just going to paddle around UK and see how quickly I can do it. Um, it's, it's now it's like, yeah, like, sure. I might be a really good paddler or I might not even be a, the best paddler, but ultimately a lot of expedition paddling is just about putting one stroke in front of the other and just continuing a lot of the challenge then becomes with how do you manage yourself how do you manage the environment you're in how do you navigate effectively how do you make correct calls on a daily basis that will either put you ahead or mean you don't die Svalbard really had all those aspects even to the extent that came 2012 when pg and i had sort of said okay let's try and make it happen we hadn't really found anyone else that was, that was you know so to speak, crazy enough to want to do it with us, but also life had sort of happened. He'd gone off to MIT to sort of do advanced engineering studies. I had sort of, I don't even remember what I was doing at the time, I was doing something that had sort of distracted me with some other expedition or project I was doing. It was just like, oh, this isn't the right time. And it sort of sat dormant until about 2014. The funny thing is in 2012 or 2013, when we were originally talking about doing it, the the weather window was perfect it was actually like the ice broke really early around Svalbard and it would have been the perfect year but we didn't go that year 
And I guess that is a big aspect to, to talk about with Svalbard is that it's not just a matter of paddling around and avoiding polar bears and dealing with big, you know, glacial cliffs. There's also the sea ice. So about 80% of the coastline gets locked up in sea ice in winter. And it's not guaranteed every summer that it will even break up. Probably is more so now because of global warming, but it's uh, at the time it was very uncertain and over the sea ice for days. And that's kind of what the original um, Israeli group was doing. They were trying to make way over the ice. Um, whereas uh, the Norwegian couple, they didn't have as much sea ice to deal with. So come 2014, we still hadn't sort of done it. There'd been a really good window that we hadn't gone with that year. Um, I had sort of read about a couple of semi attempts at it where people try to use folding boats and that resulted in one person turning around two weeks in the other person going off by himself, trying to get around Spitsbergen who ended up burning his kayak on a beach and being recovered by the search and rescue, something like that. Anyway, some weird stories, you know, strange things happen under the midnight sun. So come 2014, I sort of met Tara Mulvaney from New Zealand. We, she was up in Canada paddling. She came to paddle around Vancouver Island. I sort of helped her find a boat and helped her sort of do some stuff along the lines of getting ready for that trip. She went off and did that by herself. Came back, we started paddling some white water and went down the coast. And then I just sort of said, hey, you know, you're, you're proving that you're hardy enough, you're crazy enough. You've already paddled around most of New Zealand by yourself. Actually, I think she had paddled around every single island, big island in New Zealand at that point by herself. So I was like, what do you think about paddling Svalbard with me? You know, and this other guy, PG. And um, she was like, sure, that sounds that sounds like a pretty cool challenge. And I said, wow, it's one thing I better tell you about, and that's the polar bears. And she's like, okay, what about them? And so I showed her some sort of footage of the other expedition. And she's like, oh, okay, that's very different. <laughs> and um, if you ever meet Tara, she's one who's just like, she giggles a lot. She's always giggling, even when she shouldn't be giggling. She's giggling at things that should be making you scared. And so she's got this contagious giggle. And she's like, well, I've already said yes, so I guess I'm in. And, then, and I was like, perfect. This is this is exactly the sort of people I need to, to have involved with this trip. Because for me, it was like, I want to be the one who makes the call to not go sort of thing. I want to be the one that's going, okay, we need to pull back or we don't pull back. And I wanted to have characters who were willing to sort of push. It was pretty assumptive of me to think that I would have a bigger breaking point, but it was more that I've kind of had my heart and dream and mind put into this trip for a long time. I don't want somebody else sort of pulling the plug, so to speak. I wanted to make sure I had a really, really strong team. And so Tara had obviously proven herself with all her exploits and PG had as well. He was ex-Special uh, Forces in the Norwegian uh, Armed Forces and he had grown up uh, in a Sami culture in the Arctic. And he'd so he knew, he knew the sort of Arctic environment of Scandinavia. He was very comfortable in the winter. He'd skied across uh, Norway by himself with his dog. Uh, and done a numerous other sort of uh, really challenging, uh, grueling training and, and stuff like that. Plus, he was also a firearms specialist. And so the three of them, well, the three of us added to a really nice broad spectrum of skills. PG's probably only weakness at the point was that he wasn't a very experienced kayaker. But I also felt very confident that he would pick it up pretty well. And I had taught him years earlier sort of how to roll his kayak or I'd helped 
refine this this role he had learned anyway and from that sort of time frame i'd learned that yeah he picked things up very well he's a very athletic and very intelligent guy and um, it shouldn't be a problem and so that that was it we had uh, a group of three and i had spoken to jeff allen at the time too hoping he would come along he initially was very keen to be the fourth but then stuff in his life sort of didn't allow it to happen and instead of pushing to find a fourth person we decided that three was kind of like the magic number it's uh, a lot of expeditions will you know sort of say three is that that's that, that perfect um power to to gear weight ratio so to speak you can you can do everything you need and carry the least amount of gear with the three that was our, our team and um I think it really helped that I'd been thinking of, of this trip for at that point almost five years and we were able to pull together the whole thing within six seven months we managed to get funding and sponsors on board and all the different connections that PG and I had in Norway we managed to shovel those around and we ended up getting boats shipped to Sweden which then ended up on a, an expedition boat uh, there that then took them up to, to Svalbard for us then left them in Longyearbyen, which is the main town, and then they then took a food drop for us and put it at the top end of the islands in Hinlopen Strait. And they did that all for a very small amount of money. And so here we were, basically our only costs, thankfully for us, were our plane tickets. So we managed to all fly up there. And I think, you know, which is kind of crazy, I live in Canada now, and like trying to do an Arctic expedition here is going to cost you... Twenty to forty thousand dollars for a group of three to four of you to go do, and we managed to do this world first expedition up there, and I think it cost us each about three and a half thousand dollars. You know, yes, there was a lot of support that helped keep that number down, but uh, even with all that support in Canadian Arctic, it would still cost you a lot of money. So, so how did you go about planning the trip? And you've got your team together, you've done some of the logistics work, you're you're skilled and ready to go. How did you actually put the plan together for it? A lot of it was guesswork and I shouldn't say it was that much guesswork like it's, it's a strange place like yes it hasn't been sea kayaked around it hasn't had you know at that point anyway and, and, and it but it had been charted it had been explored a lot there are expedition cruise ships that go up to most of the parts of the coastline there at some point during the year um, there's people that have skied across it there's people that have skied kind of around it uh, there's people that have snowmobiled or, you know, people get sent up to the the polar, you know, North Pole at that point and they ski back during winter to Longyearbyen. Um, so it's, it's, it is very much a hub of a lot of activity. There's a lot of expeditions going out and this was just a different way of doing one of these trips that hadn't succeeded. And despite that, or despite the fact that there were so many activities going out to, to sort of explore this area people did not have faith that a sea kayaking journey could be done that being said there was a wealth of of resources and knowledge to, to to sort of draw on as to like how long are these sections where are places that we potentially can land the only spot that was kind of really up in the air was along the biggest glacial cliff section Osfona, and it's it's, you know, it's um, 100 and, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head now, 185 kilometers of 
glacial cliffs, they are semi broken up. Like they're, I think the longest section is about 140 kilometers and there's a couple of other bits above that. And it's, it was really known, you know, the ships I've worked on boats up there since, and you, you go up there and spend like a day up there sort of seeing the cliffs and you maybe visit one of the islands that's off there and then you sort of get out of there. And most of the time you go up hoping to see the ice cliffs or the polar bears and it's just softened with fog and you don't even get to see it. So that area was kind of, yeah, it was very much obscure. It was, uh, you know, what's the expression? Terra obscura. And even while we were doing it, we discovered like the charts we were using, it, it was off. There was so, so much less ice that we, where we were expecting to find ice that wasn't there and we had to paddle further distances. And so that, that aspect was really unknown. Where could we camp? How, like, do we have to paddle 140 kilometers nonstop? Do we have to paddle 180 kilometers nonstop? The way we planned is we took what information we could get. We found out where there was old ruins of hunters' huts and cabins. You know, there's a rich history of people trying to survive up there and living up there. And we planned for the worst case scenario. So, okay, if we are going to have to paddle for like three days nonstop along these glacial cliffs, and the weather's really bad or it's really poor visibility, how are we going to do it? So we planned on having these outrigger floating systems so that two people could be paddling while towing one person who's kind of sleeping on this sort of outrigger float system. Um, we then planned for polar bears, which is the biggest thing for us. You know, we looked at the distances, we calculated, you know, how much food we would need. We learned from other expeditions. We didn't want to have too much gear. We didn't want to have too little food. We didn't want to be trusting just our tripwire fences to protect us we needed to be on a military watch so we needed at least three people so that we could have someone awake at all times keeping an eye out for polar bears uh, we needed to have fast boats boats that weren't overly large widthwise but so we had enough length that they were fast but not so narrow that they were tippy you know we took a gamble we went with Tahe, Zigo, and Power, Arrow and Power boats, and we hadn't, we hadn't paddled any of them. They just literally, through research, they fit the right dimensions and criteria I was looking for, and we took a risk on them, and we ordered them, and we got them, and they worked out, but they could have also gone totally wrong, so there was a, there was a couple of gambles we made there. And then I think, kind of like what Graham Charles was saying, there's an, there's an aspect where you can plan it too much that it takes away from the journey we planned it enough that we felt comfortable in what we knew we felt comfortable in the skills we had and the equipment we had that we could cross almost any hurdle that we came across on this journey and that was kind of the attitude we went into it with and the, and the hope i think in hindsight i personally wouldn't have changed much about it i know the other two have expressed discussions that they would have liked to have done some personal training together and made sure that we had all had the same sort of paddling skill set and stuff to begin with and that we had sort of maybe done a bit more rifle training to start with or we had maybe brought slightly different guns with us but I think no matter what the trip is I think there's always things you look back on and go wow we could have done this better we could have done this we could have done that and that would have made this better I know PG in hindsight was like, oh, would it be nice of a fourth person who also spoke Scandinavian, whether it was Swedish or Norwegian, because 
English is his second language and for him it was very tiring having to talk in English the whole time and it would have been nice for him to have somebody who he could have spoken Scandinavian with and that was actually something that would have been really good. It would have been a nice uh, addition. Plus, as a three, there's always somebody who ends up sort of paddling by themselves at some point and it's kind of nicer when you can pair up a bit more. But yeah, again, those are just in hindsight, right? Like the reality is, is we succeeded and we had the right skill set and we we didn't just survive the trip. I feel like we thrived. And so that was, well, yeah, at least physically thrived. Mentally, it was very challenging. But, and so my, I guess for me personally, I started that trip at about 81 kilograms. I finished that trip at 85 kilograms and that was pure muscle gain. So very few expeditions can you ever say you go on a trip and actually gain weight. You know, it shows that you're actually got prime amounts of food to eat. You're actually, your body is adapting and skinning stronger rather than slowly eating stuff. And so that's kind of a really different thing to be able to say about an expedition. But it just shows that our food planning in particular was very well done. Probably we, people would argue that we could have gone lighter, but we didn't, you know, it worked out really well. So, so share the experience of the of the trip. Kind of uh, walk us through some of the highlights of the paddling portion. Yeah, the highlights. I think I remember very much on the first day, and we're paddling out of um, Isfjorden, and that to me was just a, a huge highlight. It's like here is a, a trip that I've been thinking of for you know five, almost six years at that point, and here we were, we were doing it. We were sitting off and this, this place that had sort of absorbed a lot of my imagination and a, and a bunch of time over the years was suddenly there. It was interesting because a lot of people said, Oh, have you ever been up here before? And I was like, no. And they're like, and you're doing this trip. And it's like, well, yeah, like what, a you know, what, there's no other better way to sort of experience a place for the first time than to go on this intimate, really, you know, in tuned journey of the speed. And, you know, a lot of people up there thought it was crazy because there's so many opportunities to work up there as a, as a polar guide and to, to live in the town. Um, you know, Long Indians are really, well, the whole, the whole area. So I was really interesting because anyone from any in the world can come to live there and it doesn't matter what passport you hold. It's like, you can just basically rock up you can live there as long as you want, as long as you make a job. And so it's, a lot of people were kind of confused by the fact that you've never been here before and you're choosing to explore it like this and doing something that's never been done before and most people don't think it will be done. But here we were, and that to me was a highlight. I was like, wow, it's happening. We're doing it. The ironic thing is, or I don't even know, it's not really ironic, but I think the strange thing is I, I felt like, as much as I researched a place, I felt like it was going to be more frozen than it was. The reality is, is other than the mountain peaks, Spitsbergen in particular is a very... It's a very lush place, really. It's like it's amazingly green with lots of tundra and reindeer. And um, it was far more alive and welcoming than I actually expected it to be. And I think any of us expected it to be. We were both really, or all three of us were really, um, really expecting something that was going to be colder. It was going to be harder to find places to land. Uh, and it it wasn't. It was There was this... You don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint it as like a, a paradise, but it was. <laughs> it's. It wasn't this. It isn't the same expedition. Like an Antarctic expedition, you're really on a frozen landscape, and it's somewhere that 
you're just not meant to be as a large terrestrial mammal. Whereas Svalbard, it's somewhere you can, you can, you can, and it, it's been proven through history, you know, that people have been living up there for a long time. That really became apparent once you started sort of journeying the coast and finding these old, old um, hunting cabins and, and sort of realizing like almost every beach we landed on, you could find enough wood to light a fire and cook on. So we took all this fuel to, to cook on and we didn't have to use hardly any of it. It was maybe like four days on the whole trip where we had to use fuel. But every other beach we could find, you know, there was perfect amounts of tinder from like old, um, older tree bark rolls that were there that you just light and they would crackle up and then perfectly sized branches that you could feed up from there and then bigger stuff. And yes, you could say, okay, if it wasn't for logging in Russia, where all those trees were coming from to wash up on the shore, it wouldn't be like that. But at the moment we were there, it was like that. And it was, it was quite, quite a, an amazing thing. Yeah. That's not what I was expecting uh, to hear as well. I was picturing just nothing but ice. Yeah, no, it's, um, the, all the low land along the, along the shore is pretty green. It's lush with all this, like, uh, tundra style shrubbery and reindeers and that and it's um it isn't until you get to Nordisland that, that it becomes the frozen realm that you really that you iconicize the sort of arctic expedition with and it's it was at that point to me that it really became the highlight and i think we would all say that too is like the rest of it was very interesting it was very much this arctic oasis of life and greenery and there was you know bird cliffs with millions of birds nesting there was foxes there's reindeer and walrus you know the walrus were i think they were definitely a highlight for me as well so i think one of the funniest stories i remember is like we're we stopped for lunch and there's a in the bay that we stopped in and pg's like that's a that's a walrus there's definitely a walrus there and we're like hmm, maybe and we sit there and watch it and it's still something moving under the water and I'm like, ah, no, I think it's just a rock under the water. And PJ's like, no, no, it's definitely a, it's definitely a walrus. And so we'd finished lunch by this point. I paddle out, I paddle over to it and um, I tap it. And of course it's a rock, <laughs> tink, tink. And he's like, ah, oh, I thought that was going to be a, a walrus. And then further on, we're, we're paddling away and we saw a couple of walrus, but they were very, very far away, probably like almost a kilometer away. He's like, oh, there's some walrus. You could tell they were spitting stuff in the air and puffing and puffing. And then we paddle up this other channel between these little islets looking for a place to camp. And there's this sort of rock in the water and with water swirling around it. And, and it's, um, I think Tara's like, oh, yeah, there's a walrus. And PG's like, oh, no, that's just a rock. And um, so we're paddling sort of closer to it, closer to it. And as we go past it, something, this walrus pops up. And it's like, oh, gosh, it is a walrus. <laughs> and we all paddle off in different directions. And um, so this became sort of like this theme. It's like, oh, is it a rock? Is it a walrus? <laughs> and then I remember the day we sort of rounded up into the top coast of Nordisland, and then there was a shape on some ice. And we started, and PG's like, oh, there's a walrus over there. Let's go have a look. So we paddled sort of towards it. And we're kind of part, probably about halfway there. And he's like, oh, it's not a walrus. It's just a rock. And so then he turns off and sort of stops the detour. And, and I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. I feel like it's, you know, I kept paddling. And then sure enough, here's this walrus on this ice floe. And it was just beautiful kind of midnight hour sun glowing on her. And she's sort of just lying there. And, and, and I was like, wow, there's this walrus. And PG had thought it was a rock. And uh, the one, you know, so far we discovered, you know, we were scared 
just really scared of these walruses. That was humans. Like nothing's more dangerous than a than a walrus in the water. You know, they pop zodiacs and they attack you for no reason. We'd come to realize from a number of encounters up to this point that they they didn't. They didn't just see you and see red and destroy you. They often ran away from you or swam away from you or they came up very curiously and then disappeared. Uh, but the one thing I had been told is that they're very much aggressive when they're a female with their calf. And so at this point, I'm probably 10 feet away from this walrus on this flow edge on this little slab of ice. And um, as I'm sort of cruising past her, taking photos, I suddenly notice right tucked in behind her is this tiny little calf. And I'm like, oh, dear, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> and so at this point, she obviously turns and looks at me and I'm just like not moving, taking some photos. And I'm trying to blow on my kayak, just like to keep it to pushing along like keep going keep going and i'm slowly slowly drifting past this mother walrus like very close and eventually i get past her far enough that i feel like i can put the camera down pick up my paddle and i just start paddling and just frantically going oh my god she's gonna try and get me and she didn't get off the ice but then i was like okay fine i'm good and i started paddling through the ice getting back to the group and then next one was this big woof, behind me and i turn around and here's this walrus right on the back rudder of my kayak and i'm just like oh my gosh and i just start paddling and she's just following me and then this little calf's popping up next to her and i'm like oh gosh she is after me and then the other two are laughing at me they're on the other side of some ice drift ice that's there and i'm just frantically paddling and this tire's like there's a walrus gonna get you and um <laughs> and eventually she just disappeared and left me alone and and it was like oh okay it wasn't an aggressive encounter i think again she was just super curious like whoa what was that and so she came following me to sort of see what it was and um so they they were definitely highlights and we encountered them a number of times uh including another time which was a really big highlight where we had to land on a beach because there was a storm coming and we knew there was kind of like this old hut in this area and we knew it was a good place to land and we came in and there were probably 150 walrus hauled out on this beach and it was like oh man <laughs> we have to sort of get on that beach and just in the <laughs> corner behind them was this little clearing just against some rocks a little clearing on the beach and we're like okay we're gonna try and just get past them and into the bay and up onto that beach so we, we were paddling it past all these and they really smell and they're really loud and they're in the water too and so here we are paddling through and these big walrus are coming up next to us and a whole group of probably about 10 of them came up to us and at this point we'd already sort of paddled onto a couple of beaches through smaller groups but this was like a really big group and but we managed to like get our way through and we stayed stayed as a group and we had some come up really close and then they exploded in, in the water and sort of like you know a big splash and swam off and eventually we landed on the beach next to this big haul out and then a group of 10 came right over and were checking us out but we managed to get through it and we really discovered and, and found that they were actually one of our probably favorite animals on that trip they're just they're just super you know, initially you look and go, wow, ugly, weird, smelly things that make a lot of weird noises. But then you start to realize they're very, they've got a lot of character. Like they make these really amazing whistles that initially I thought was a bird, but then realized that it's the walrus. They do this really high pitched little whistle to each other. And it's part of their, their communication, not just these growls and grunts. And um, the mothers are super tender with their calves and, uh, but at the same time, they're obviously they they're scarred from polar bear attacks, and the males are very aggressive with each other, and you know it's but yeah, super interesting animals. 
So while the uh, the walrus were your favorite, I would have to imagine that the polar bears were kind of a combination of favorite and least favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, definitely the, the polar bears are the show stealers, really. They, everybody loves them. We do as well. Yeah, definitely, I guess the biggest highlight of the trip was one morning I woke up with a polar bear on top of my legs, on top of the tent. It was one of these moments where it's like, okay, we had we had looked at the previous expedition that had had this happen, and they got attacked by a polar bear in their tent, got through the tripwire. We had made all these plans to avoid this situation, and... I woke up with one on my legs. We're all in the tent. We all trusted the tripwire fence. And here it was happening. And ironically, we were only four days into the expedition. (laughs) (laughs) And so here I was going, how bloody embarrassing. You know, we did all this planning. We had a trip for us showing us that this is what can happen. And day four, we've got a polar bear on top of the tent. And that was the first thing that popped into my mind as I woke up <laughs> with this weight on my legs. And so, I, I must admit, like initially I didn't actually think it was a walrus because we'd had caribou around, or sorry, reindeer um, around the the perimeter of the tripwire fence the night before. And I was kind of like, my, my, my actual really first thought was like, how did a reindeer get through the tripwire fence without setting it off? But then I realized they weren't hooves digging into my legs. They were something kind of, squishy and warm and very heavy and i looked over and pg was next to me i looked over inside tara's next to me and i'm like well it feels like the weight of a very large man standing on my legs so it's either a human out there or i don't you know or i do really know what it is and so at this point i look up and i the way to come off my legs for a little bit i look up down the end of the tent and then i see the silhouette of a big bear claw sort of like running its itself down the tent and the, the claws sort of pushing into the tent a bit and then the weight comes back onto my legs. I guess the lead up to this was that I had woken up to Tara sort of muttering things in her sleep. And so in my in my sleep, I had sort of heard something and I was like, oh, what is that? And then suddenly I heard it again and I was like, okay, that's definitely somebody talking. And so then I opened my eyes. I happened to be on my side looking straight at Tara, who was asleep, eyes closed. And I was like, okay, maybe I was dreaming that in my half-awake state. And then just as I'm about to close my eyes, she again is like, ow, stop it. What are you doing? Get off me, sort of thing. And I was like, huh. But there was nothing else around that was really signaling anything wrong. So I was like, oh, she's just talking in her sleep. Um, So then I sort of roll onto my back and snuggle into my sleeping bag and close my eyes and and drifting back to sleep. And that's when that weight came onto my legs. And so at that point, I'm like, oh, son of a gun, what is this? And so, yeah, as soon as I saw those claws and I saw that, that felt that weight come back into my legs, that's when I went, oh my God, how embarrassing. This is about to happen. We're about to get mauled by a polar bear. <laughs> Clearly you're, uh, you're with us today, so it ended well, but what happened next? Yeah, so the next thing was I was lying on my back. I was wiggling my arms out over the top of my head, reaching into the vestibule above us, which is where the rifles were, trying to find one of the rifles without moving my legs. And I just couldn't find one <laughs> without moving. And so at this point, I'm just like, oh gosh. And so I nudge PG with my elbow and he kind of like looks at me with a grump. And then I'm like, get the gun. And he's like, oh. and he goes, kind of goes back to sleep again. And I had to nudge him again. He's like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, there's an effing polar bear 
on my legs, get the gun. And he's like, huh? And I'm pointing down at my legs, trying not to make too much noise. And I think at this point, he was just, he, and afterwards he tells me he didn't really hear what I said, but he could just tell from the expression and the way I'm pointing. And he just turned, he grabbed the gun and he cocked it. And as soon as there was a metallic shh, shh, the weight came off my legs. He went into the vestibule to start opening it. I, at this point, kind of spun around going for the second gun. And then there was a bang outside as the tripwire fence went off. And then PG, by this point, had managed to get the vestibule door open. Tara was waking up. She's like, what's going on? And I was like, there's a polar bear outside. It was standing on my legs. And she's like, oh, there is a polar bear outside. She said, I thought, I thought there was something kind of pushing me around on the side. Of the, and I thought it was you or PG out there. And, uh, and so it was like, oh, that's what she was talking about. And then PG's got his head outside and he's like, it was a polar bear. And he's like, ah, but it's just a little one. I could wrestle it. <laughs> and then he gets out and I push out and I look at him and I go, wow, it might be a little polar bear PG, but that thing still must weigh probably close to 100 kilograms. <laughs> that would be a big wrestle. <laughs> and um, we walk up to the tripwire fence. And part of what we'd sort of learned from the last expedition was that they had had a single line. And that single line was enough to allow a big polar bear underneath it without setting up the tripwire fence. So we had done it done a, a double strung line so one that was about knee height another one that was about hip height and the idea was that no big polar bear could get under that without setting it off and so how this polar bear got through we didn't know but once we got up to the tripwire fence we realized that in its panic it had run and it had only triggered the bottom fence hmm. wire so it showed how small the bear was like it was only you know hip height when on all fours and it had just gone under the top wire, triggered the bottom one. And so this one was likely to be, you know, a second year, probably a third year cub on its own uh, and was still small enough. Obviously, it was probably a female because the males, by the time they've taken third year, are pretty big, uh, bigger than their mothers, but the females will stay smaller. And it had managed to sneak under a little bit of a depression where the the lower wire was and it managed to sneak under and what a lot of people don't realize is polar bears are kind of like cats when they decide there's something they're interested in they get right down and they wiggle along and get down really low and stealth mode low profile they're not like your typical vision of a bear who just bumbles his way in and just oh i'm gonna take this and eat this <laughs> um they're very stealthy they're very sleek they're very indirect they're very they're very intelligent like you hear stories of them sitting with their paws over their noses so seals don't see their black noses in the in the snow or the whiteout and they do things like that and so this young one had just snuck under got under there and what had happened the night before we were eating some food it was a vanilla dessert was what pg was eating he decided he didn't like this dessert so he just stuck it outside the tent and of course, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, you can't do that. It's not, that's not bear aware. But the reality is in that environment, all of our food was within our tent area. Like we had the kayaks within there. They were full of food. We had the tripwire fence around mostly to alert us that bears were getting into the food or the kayaks were on watch and our boats were away from us. We would put the tripwire fence around the boats so that we could hear hopefully it's one of the bears or someone who was trying to get into the, into the kayaks. All the other foods out there, we'll just chuck, you know, we'll just put the food out there. And um, sure enough, this young bear came along, snuck under, was like, oh, I'm a vanilla bear. That's vanilla dessert. That must be for me. <laughs> and and um, at this point, I'm looking at, we're looking at this fence. He triggered off. The bear's running off into the rise and looking over his shoulder again, don't shoot me. And then I turn around and look at the tent and I start laughing. 
And the others are laughing, you know, the others are going, what are you laughing at? And I'm like, well, look at the tent. And we all look at the tent and here's where my feet were on the, the sloped end of the, the tent is like just this mess of slobber and vanilla <laughs> dessert. And so we started piecing together the story. And so that was the story. Like what had happened is she'd snuck under, she'd got this dessert and it was right next to the tent, just outside the vegetable. So at this point, she's sniffing out this packet of dessert. She was stepping on Tara slightly on the edge of the tent, dragging the, the sort of packet backwards. And she's stepping on Tara as she goes. So Tara's in her sleep going, ow, what are you doing? Stop it, get off me. Blah, blah, blah. I'm waking up. So we're going, oh, she's talking in her sleep. Then the bear puts it on the end of the tent, starts squishing out the, the vanilla dessert and tearing open the package on my legs, which is why she was standing on there. Here I was thinking she was kneading the tent because she'd seen me move, trying to figure out how do I get this thing that was moving. But it was like, oh, no, I'm opening this packet of dessert and then licking it all off and then squishing it some more and blah, blah, blah. It was totally not paying attention to the fact that there was two or three humans directly underneath her. And then as soon as this metallic gun sound sort of of, of a cocking gun goes off, she's like, oh my gosh, that's right. There was another smell of something around here and takes off, bang. <laughs> and um, so it went from this like, holy cow, we're dead. To, that was quite a funny story. And ironically, that day we were just talking about when should we start our bear watch? Like at what point do we start? Because like this is a low incident area but at some point it becomes a high incident area and when do we start and that evening obviously marked the the time that we started on our military shift of being awake for two hours so this was day four right <laughs> yeah that was day four yeah. okay and how many days and in, in kilometers total for the trip so it was a 71 71 day trip from Closing the loop. So altogether, it was a 72-day trip, but 71 days of actually completing the circumnavigation. And the distance was 1,200, they say 1,250 kilometers from start to finish, which I can't remember what that is in miles. But Yeah, I can't do the calculation maybe, myself. Maybe but... it was in miles the other <laughs> way around. I'm, I'm trying to remember the stats now. All right. Um, so how did you prepare both mentally and physically for the trip and its unusual conditions? Yeah, that was probably the hardest one for all of us to sort of um, wrap our heads around. Like I think PG was probably the most prepared for potential cold for, from his experiences of, of living in, in Arctic Norway. Um, but as he discovered, it was like far, like, it was nothing like a winter trip. So like for me personally, a lot of it was... <laughs> bear and ice cream <laughs> and i mean like drinking beer not not like grr bears like this is my accent gets me in trouble it sounds like i'm talking about bears and bears but but like part of my training was like i've got to put some extra weight on so i was eating as much ice cream as i could i was drinking at least one alcoholic beverage of high calorie bear in the uh in the evenings and trying to gain a bit of weight but also paddling as much as i could so i was doing Long distance paddling, I was going out surfing Skookumchuk and just really, just really beating myself up physically, trying to gain muscle and endurance and getting numb bum from, from sitting in a kayak as much as I could. PG was trying to do the same thing, paddling as much as he could when he was around. Tara was doing a bunch of guiding work. and But a lot of it for me was, it, in my mind, was like, it's about becoming efficient at paddling, so trying to get 
loaded boats, paddle loaded boats, trying to become a very efficient paddle, uh, having a very efficient paddle cadence. So every stroke counting, and that was something that we'd really try to communicate as a team, like we need to have that. And that was a, a big aspect that initially was really odd because we, you know, even though the physical conditioning, we're all responsible for our own sort of fitness and how do we do this. But on the the day when we turned up and we started paddling and and we got out there, it was very apparent that PG didn't have as much comfort or experience in the kayaks. And so he was trailing behind and Tara was very comfortable in the kayak. I was very comfortable in the kayak. Though the very interesting thing and something that became kind of a frustration for Tara later on is that suddenly, probably about three weeks in, PG got the gist of it. He picked up the nuances. He figured out the efficiencies of the paddle stroke and suddenly he was the least experienced paddler but he was one of the stronger paddlers and emotionally that was quite hard on Tara for but the, you know it's, it's already hard enough being a female sometimes in those situations but then to suddenly have the least experienced person become stronger you know that that's that's definitely a really hard thing and that became sort of a, a real I can't really speak for her, but I know that that definitely created mental challenges, that suddenly she wasn't necessarily the strongest paddler in all aspects there, and that can that can cause issues. So that that's, you know, again, where the, the, the personal training comes in. It's it's hard to know if you, if you don't actually go out and paddle as a group, which we couldn't because we were all across the world at the time. It's hard to sort of learn off each other. And then once you're on trip, it, it's a bit trickier. So your uh, your beer and ice cream diet though sounds like a, a key component. Yeah, yeah, for me, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was great. A lot of people laughed. They're like, "Oh my god, you're eating like two gallons of ice cream a week and bears and and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I just gotta get the calories up." And it was funny, even though I was eating like that and I was eating as much calories as I could and big meals, I and I gained like I went from probably seventy, let's say seventy seven kilograms at the time, and then I packed it on to eighty one. And some of that was fat and some of it was muscle, but it was it was definitely what I personally found is the more I ate and the more calories I did and the harder I paddled, it was definitely I was gaining muscle more than I was fat. I was I was hoping to kind of get much chubbier than I was, but it, it didn't quite work <laughs> that way for me. I was still like, oh, I'm still not quite as, uh, haven't got the extra layers that I would really like to have. But it, it worked out well for me. It was like there was the extra that extra layer that I could have and, and that definitely shed off over the trip. By the end of it, I really had the plan of having a before and after, like an out underwear shot and we kind of, it, yeah, it ended up not happening, which I really am sad about because it would have been a really great photo to have like looked at the body types and what, how we changed physiology through the trip and the stresses. And we definitely got the before and after shot of us in our paddling gear. And it's like, at the start, we all look really clean and fresh and brand new dry suits and stuff like that. And Tara looks like Tara and I'm clean cut and PG's clean cut. And then at the end, it's like Tara still looks like Tara. She's, you know, <laughs> this, I've got a big gray beard and look really haggard and PG's kind of all slouched and looks pretty haggard. But yeah, it would have been really interesting to see how the bodies really change. Because I remember coming off the trip and having a shower and getting out of the shower and looking in the mirror for the first time and going, holy moly, I have never been in such good shape. And it was like, I got muscles that I never knew I had gotten. <laughs> and it was, uh, so it would have been, yeah, pretty interesting. 
So you mentioned earlier going from uh, from 81 kilograms to 85 kilograms, and that was a testament to the food planning. Um, did you have food drops along the way? We had one single food drop that we stood, you know, strategically. We there's a gap sort of between the the main island, so Henlopen uh, Strait, and we had made strategic ideas about depending on what the weather's doing, depending on what ice is doing, we can either leave from Isfjord and we can go clockwise around the islands or we can go counterclockwise just judging on what the, the ice charts are doing and then on top of that we could also figure eight through the islands so we potentially don't have to just go in a clockwise direction we could figure eight if there was a gap through one way and, and another way and so we kind of went okay if we put a food drop here sort of in the sort of the, the, the meeting point of a lot of the islands in Hinlopen Strait gives us lots of options. And that was the plan. And uh, the boat itself, when it did the drop, could only get so far in. So it wasn't really able to drop it where we would have liked it to have been, but it put it right at the northern tip of Spitsbergen where the Hinlopen Strait starts. And when they were up there, it was all frozen in. So that was as far as they could get. And so they did the food drop for us. And so we had an extra... I believe it was 21 days or 22 days worth of food. And then in hindsight, this seems really silly in hindsight. So we were actually packing 50, I think it was 54 days worth of food in our kayaks. And we had 22 days worth of food drop. Hindsight, I'm like, well, maybe we should have made that the other way around. Um, but I think that initial heavy load conditioning we had really helped us in the long run because we got lighter and we so we had a, that that build up of strength and that real strain on us to start with that our bodies adapted and got stronger and then by the time we lightened up and we sort of selectively left some food at our food drop and just took what we needed to get around in order to land it and then came back and picked up the rest and then continued on around it really it did allow a lot of flexibility and it did allow us to build this core strength that enabled us to succeed. And that became, you know, quite apparent when we encountered um, the Norwegian team. There was a group of five who were, they came to just paddle around Nordislandet because Nordislandet was definitely, the, it's the apex, it's the it's the, it's the the crux island of them all. It's the one where everyone gets almost killed. It's the one that's the, the most challenging. It's the epitome of Arctic exploration. And, um, by the time they kind of joined in and we met them at one of these huts and we all spent one night there together before we split off, uh, they had just come in fresh. And so we'd already spent a month paddling and that build up to that just had given us so much strength and so much in tune sort of um, synergy with our, with our boats that during the next sort of couple of weeks while we were getting around Nordisland, we had this leapfrogging sort of, relationship with the Norwegian team and we sort of became you know friends but adversaries and it was this unintentional sort of competition to who would get around Nordisland at first uh and they were sort of like well we're here for two weeks we're here for a short time not a long time we've got to just keep moving and we were making more strategical decisions about when will the ice break should we make this cut across here should we push longer here and there was a point where they had left ahead of us and three days later we were camping and they paddled past us and they're like, whoa, you guys must've just left after we did. And we we're like, well, no, actually we just left yesterday. 
and they were kind of like, "Wow, you guys must have been paddling really fast." And 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 it was really interesting because like we hadn't we hadn't paddled really fast. We had just waited a couple of days later. The ice had cleared up. So while they had spent two days dragging through the ice and trying to find ways through, we had found big open spacing between the ice and within a day we had covered what it took them to do in two days and so the next day we all met on this island and then from there on we just kept paddling and for us to eventually get around and then still have to paddle for another month uh was you know it was a big thing you know, they, they were, you know, we were trying not to be competitive because we had to think about the bigger picture. We were all trying to say to each other, like, let's not be silly because it's, it's a safety thing. If we're trying to compete, make stupid decisions, that's not great. We should all be very, just try to make smart choices. Of course, <laughs> in the heat of things, as you're getting closer and you start making maybe choices of, of, of a competitive nature and there's still... You know, I'm still very good friends with um, Simon, who was the team leader of that trip and a couple of the other guys. And there's still some sort of like tentative stuff that we talk about. And yes, you know, it's in some ways we joined our dots around Nordis Landit before they did. And this is probably the first time I've ever said this and Simon will quite like this, but it's like, I would say as much as we probably circumnavigated Nordisland at first, they followed the true coastline of Nordisland at first. And so, you know, that's that's the aspect that they've gone on, that they have done a the true coastline of Nordisland at circumnavigation, whereas we veered off. We still totally circumnavigated the island, but by, by some of the section we were on, the, the Spitsbergen side. And so it's, you know, if we're in the world of like claiming the first true things or whatever, you you could argue that the Norwegians were the first ones to follow the true coastline of Nordisk London. And uh, so that's one for Simon there to and the crew. Just to... <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about Nordisk Landa that uh, made it the crux move of the trip? It has everything. So it has all the polar bears. You know, I wouldn't say like all of them, but it's probably like 80% of the polar bears and the big ones. It's got the big ones who want to eat you. It has... The icy coastlines it has the fog it has the it has the glacial cliffs and, and that's that is that is really the big part is you know you're going into the trip and you know, say on most trips you can you know you're doing a big day if you're paddling 50 to 60 kilometers or you know 30 to you know 25 to 35 40 miles a day you're doing a big day and yes you can push more but you know maybe you don't have a safe place to land so you don't want to totally tire yourself out and maybe you've got nighttime to deal with you know in our case we didn't have nighttime to deal with so you could paddle quite well for as long as you wanted to because you didn't necessarily have to deal with nighttime um you also didn't have to deal with huge swell but what you potentially did have to deal with is wind and moving sea ice, and which is is super dangerous. Plus, carving ice off the actual glacial cliffs, and polar bears who are swimming around amongst all that, looking for something to eat. So, all those things plus the anabatic winds that come rushing off the glacial sort of fronts and stuff like that are all adding to like this is really potentially a very dangerous place to be 
And we experienced all of that. We experienced the winds, we experienced the shifting sea ice, we got chased by polar bears in the water along the glacial cliffs. We had to paddle for 28 hours non-stop. We slept on top of the glacial cliff at one point to, just so we didn't have to paddle for 30-something hours non-stop. And so just sleeping on a glacial cliff is, is, is huge risk. That's, you know, but in the, the sort of comparison of all the other risks of what we were dealing with on the trip, that was actually a very minimal risk. There was far more risk of being blown out to sea or being stuck in the sea ice, you know, staying on the water than just sleeping on a very inactive aspect of a glacial cliff. Uh, we also managed to find a very small sandy island that was what was left from a from the glaciers, the glaciers pushing out and creating like a sandy moraine island. And we camped on that island, which ended up being occupied by five to six large male polar bears. <laughs> so by the time we sort of figured that out, we were in the middle of a very foggy, very windy, going in the wrong direction sort of evening. And it was kind of like, okay, well, we're going to have to make the best of the situation. So for the next 24, 25 hours, we had to fend off five very interested polar bears who came out at us one at a time progressively through this 24-hour period, uh, which culminated with one large individual who came in after we'd all woken up, and we spent a good 10 minutes, probably 14 minutes, firing off well over 16, probably even more, rounds and shooting off four or five flashbangs and this polar bear wasn't running away <laughs> let's put it that way <laughs> and i've got this on footage so i've got film of this guy and he's just sauntering into camp and we fire off a, a, a banger right in his face and he just sort of scoffs and chuffs at it and then starts walking forward we're shooting rounds off at the ground around and he's sort of looking at that and swaying and trying to like you know he's trying to keep coming he really wants to and he can't smell that we're there. Like, the wind's not blowing in that direction. So people are like, oh, he could smell that you were, you know, he wanted to get in there. But it's like, no, he just, he could, he could see us probably. And he had this way that he was walking at us. And as I was talking about earlier, how they're kind of a very indirect animal. So he's walking down the beach with a swagger and he's kind of like looking, he's looking everywhere but directly at us, but he's walking towards us. So he's, you know, they've got this instinctual thing of avoiding eye contact, which is a very predatory thing to have. And if you can avoid that, a lot of animals like seals and birds won't run away if you don't look at them. And these polar bears, they just, they've, they seem to know that and they don't come straight at something looking at it. They really kind of indirectly swagger around and, but you can, you, know, you can, they're obviously coming closer. And so this guy had that, there was two other polar bears that were nearby that we'd been sort of dealing with during the night and they backed away from this bear and so obviously this guy was 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 a, was a big big bear he was dirty a bit skinnier so he was probably older but had a bit more um at stake and we'd always been told you know it's the dirty the dirty old bears you gotta watch out for they're the ones who are they've been around enough they don't get scared of things they're they they know what it means to not eat and they want to make sure that they eat and um yeah this character definitely took a lot to eventually have him just turn around and walk away. So we've, it was like, uh, we call it the, the War of Isipint. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it was very much a very interesting situation where we're running low on ammunition going, oh my gosh, this might be the day 
that we either have to shoot a bear or the bear actually gets us. And, uh, but thankfully, neither of those things happened. And we uh, pushed off and kept paddling. So your your 28-hour day in the boat, what was that due to? That was just purely that we we had the last stretch of uh, ice cliff to paddle. It was about 110 kilometers in the most direct line to paddle. And uh, we set off from where we had been sleeping on this little low point on the glacial cliff. And we just started paddling. And during that time, we got stuck in a bunch of glacial outflow, a bunch of brash ice and chunks and icebergs were in the water. We'd been trying to cut through it and then it actually closed in and, and I was leading at that point. And there's a point where I was like, okay, you guys have got to like back out of here right now. I cannot push forward anymore and the ice is going to like lock us in. So just get out of here. And so they started turning back. I stupidly didn't take my own advice and I got out my camera to take photos <laughs> and so I got these really cool photos of them and film of them trying to get back out of the ice and then by the time I put my stuff down and turned around or tried to turn around to get out of there I was like oh I am actually stuck like literally I'm trying to push myself through this ice and at this point we'd seen polar bears swimming in the water climbing onto the ice jumping back in the water, diving underwater. And we realized they were all terrain amphibious killing machines. And here I now was stuck in this ice. That was a mix of very, most of it was very small ice, but there was some you know, moderately sort of fridge size sort of uh, chunks. And then there was some big house size chunks that were sort of getting closer to me. And I just knew like if a polar bear came along at this point, I'd be screwed. They'd get through this no problem and have me. Um, but then at the same time, I'm going, man, this, these big chunks are moving and I could just be squeezed like a big pimple between them if I don't get out of here. And so here I am trying to bash my way to turn the boat around or even just back out and the rudder's getting jammed. So I'm pulling up the rudder and I'm trying to get through and eventually I managed to turn the boat enough that I can get a forward motion through a gap in, in the bergy bits and I start paddling slowly out through and it gets better and gets better and what felt like forever and probably the most scariest moment for me, I got out of the ice. So would you do it again? The whole trip or just going to the ice? <laughs> uh, the, the whole trip. Yeah, that was something that we all talked about it afterwards. It's like, would we do it again? Now we know what we know. I would say yes. I know at the time the other two kind of said nope. But I think they've changed their tune. I think it was enough of a type, almost like a type three fun trip that with, you know, that true aspect of time. You know, I know, like, I think it was just around Christmas, Tara sent me a message and like initially she was on a trip. She's like, oh, I would, if I had known, I would probably not have done that trip. And I don't know if I would do it again if, if it was on the table, but you know, just, just for Christmas, she sent me a message going, you know what? That was one of the best trips I've ever done. And I still think about it every day. And um, so I think that is an epitome of like, they just, that there sums up the trip. It was, it really was on the edge of safe passage, uh, the whole environment was, particularly around Nordisk Line, it was very extreme. But at the same time, just surreal. Just like, I don't think I'll ever experience what that trip was like ever again. Like anything like it. Because it was just such a different world. It was such a different place to be. You know, like I, I work around polar bears a lot now. And I see grizzly bears and I see black bears and all this stuff. And, but nothing ever is the same as the very first time you have to truly camp out in a remote situation with polar bears coming into your camp and you have to scare them off and you have to stay awake and 
you know, the longest you'll ever sleep is for four hours in one go because you're on this watch. And just the intimate aspect of exploring a completely new land by sea kayak, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. Like, I've gone back and I've worked as a polar guide in Svalbard since, and it's, it's not the same. I never feel as connected to the land because you'll often go to sleep on the boat, and when you wake up in the morning, you've gone to a totally different place. And so you feel very detached from the world. Whereas you're in, you're in a sea kayak and you go to sleep in the tent, you wake up and you're like, oh, that's, we're back here. And then you take the next step as you, you really intimately get to know that landscape. And you know, I think every paddler knows that. But I, for me, at the same time, it never had become so apparent as on that trip as to how intimate it can be to really get to know a new place by that mode of transport. And you'll never see it again for the first time. No, exactly. So what advice would you have for others who are looking to paddle in that area of the world? Uh, yeah, a lot of research. Uh, as much as like we've done it and other people have done parts of it. A big aspect is you have to get a permit. So the government has to give you a permit. You have to have the firearms. You have to show that you've got the means to actually use those firearms and defend yourself. You've got to have it all written down. You've got to present it to the government there. Um, at the time we applied for it, they granted us a permit. We went into the interview before we left and they said to us, you know, not allowing this trip to happen again because every single time it goes out, someone almost dies. And they said, but your plan came in and it was, it was, you had taken so much into account. You'd, you'd, you'd sort of referred to all the lessons you'd learned from previous expeditions that had happened. And you all had the right sort of background and resume that we have decided to let you do it. Then we'll decide what happens after that. And so after we finished, we came back, we came back for the talk and they were like, you did it. Wow. That was really impressive. And we really didn't think that you would do it. We thought that you had the skill set to survive and get out of there without dying, but we didn't actually think you'd complete it. And many people actually end up saying this to us, all these, my friends in Norway, and that all said this to me afterwards. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Let me go off on the trip. You didn't think I could do. And then they sort of said, well, we don't know. We don't know whether we will allow someone to do this again. Or, or, or more to the point, we're interested to see, will there be less people trying to do it now that you've done it? Or will there be more people trying to do it now that you've done it? And I haven't had the chance to actually talk to them since to find out what the sort of results of that were. But what I have heard is they're not allowing full circumnavigation on Svalbard anymore. I haven't heard that from the actual government's uh, mouth, but that's what the word on, on the ocean is, that it's that's a no-go. But uh, as far as paddling around Spitsbergen, the bigger island, as far as I know, they still allow that. You can selectively choose parts of the archipelago though the permit for doing the entire archipelago, as far as I know at this point, uh, is is a no-go. But that may have changed this year, or it may have changed last year, or it might change next year. So do some research, find out. But I would also say that it's such an amazing place that you could just choose one of the islands. You will definitely encounter polar bears no matter where you go. It's a very amazing place to paddle, and, and there's definitely outfitters you can do tour group trips up there or you can organize your own trip for two weeks three weeks longer um, there's some great fishing to be done along the coastline too i'd love to go back and just do a trip where i spend three weeks along a certain section of spitsbergen and fish for arctic char and 
So it doesn't have to be crazy extreme, but it can also be just a, an amazing place to visit. And, it's been uh, fascinating, fascinating to learn about uh, Svalbard and learn about your experience there. And you are a man of many talents, uh, in addition to paddler, photographer, and filmmaker. So uh, how can listeners reach you if, if they've got questions on any of those? Yeah, uh, so one of the hardest things is my name. It's uh, uh, Jamie, but that's actually spelled Jaime in Spanish, which is J-A-I-M-E, and then Sharp, S-H-A-R-P, like a knife. Basically, jamiesharp.com is the easiest way to find sort of a feed on me. And uh, you can sort of contact me through that. I do a lot of guiding sort of trips around the world and then do some instructional aspects as well. We are in the process of finalizing the documentary for the the trip. And so hopefully that'll be out soonish. Yeah, so all that information will sort of be there. There is a website for the expedition too. Currently, it's having a glitch and it's down, but that should be solved soon as well. And that one is svalbard.worldwildadventure.com. Uh, but also, there's a link to that through jamiesharp.com. And uh, on Instagram, you can find me at jamiesharp underscore adventures. And yeah, and then Facebook, probably you can track me down under my name. Excellent. Well, again, it's been fascinating learning from you and learning about the trip and, and all of your experiences there and, uh, and elsewhere as well. So, Jamie, I've got one final question that I like to ask all of our guests, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Oh, there's so many options. I think one that, I don't know, he might be hard to pin down, but he's also another member of Adventure Philosophy, and that's my, um, my lecturer and mentor, Mark Jones, and a good friend of Graham Charles. He would probably be a very interesting character to, to tie down and sort of um, get some stories of, of his time with Adventure Philosophy and a lot of his learnings too. And yeah, he's a very well-rounded character, very much like Graham Charles too, not just sea kayaking and stuff like that. Well, excellent. I will uh, I'll connect with you offline here. We'll get uh, Mark's, Mark's information and try and get him on the show. So once okay. again, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to hear from you. And I know that our listeners will really enjoy the, uh, the stories as well. And they've been uh, funny and fascinating at the same time. <laughs> awesome. Been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, John. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle, is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. So I don't know about you, but I learned two important things with this episode. One, don't tap a walrus on its head with your paddle, and number two, always know where your vanilla dessert is. I've also learned that a beer and ice cream diet can really power you for a long ways. So thanks to, again to, uh, to Jamie for the episode, and it was a great story. Loved listening to it, and I hope you really enjoyed it as much as I did. Our next episode is going to feature Bonnie Perry, and Bonnie is a special person to me as she was one of the first people who really welcomed me into the paddling community. 
She's not only a talented paddler, but a wonderful person to be around. And Bonnie always brings the fun to any paddling environment. She's a very insightful coach. And in this episode, she shares how paddling inspires her and how she accepted the generosity of others to reach her best. As always, thanks again for listening. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue.
Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.